Genesis chapter 5, we observe the genealogy of Adam through the line of Seth, or to use the term that's used in Hebrew, the Toledot of Adam. We saw that in the line of Seth, the blessing of fertility was perpetuated, but that Seth and his descendants also inherited the consequences of Adam's sin. Hence the emphasis in chapter 5 on the concept of death. The only exception, remember, was Enoch. And we considered the significance of the phrase, Enoch walked with God. I considered bringing Hannah up here today to let you see her. That was my illustration that apparently really struck home with a lot of you. But I thought one of two things would happen. I thought I would have her stand here and she would knock over the pulpit or one of these plants in, the, in her excitement. Or else she would sit right next to me and look at me the whole time, which would blow <laughs> the whole illustration. But Enoch had his eyes upon the Lord for his entire, the entirety of his life. As chapter 5 closed, we were introduced to a man named Noah, who will be the predominant figure in these next four chapters. You know him, I am aware. But chapter 5 introduces him to us. In chapter 6, it's clear that humanity has become increasingly wicked. So much so that in verse 6 of chapter 6, Moses records, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. In this chapter, not only today's lesson, but in this chapter we will learn that fertility is, fertility is a manifestation of God's blessing. As it was celebrated in chapter 5, but human survival is not dependent upon procreation alone. It is a blessing. Fertility is a blessing. But human survival is not dependent upon procreation alone. They got that part down. But there must be a corresponding obedience on the part of humanity to God's moral order. That will be the theme of Genesis chapter 6. Humanity was being fruitful and multiplying. But they were doing it apart from God's standards. Wickedness, which we'll see is going to result in violence, was increasing exponentially. And God is going to come down on his creation in judgment. Again, I know you know the story of the flood. We joke about it every time there's a big rain here, don't we? Uh, a, a flooding of Noahic proportions. Guess what? No, it's not. <laughs> you ain't seen anything of Noahic proportions. God's going to come down hard on his creation for getting the first part right. They were procreating, but getting the second part wrong. They were procreating apart from God's moral order. And God doesn't put up with that indefinitely. Read with me, with you, with me now, if you will, in, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, or tov, uh, they were good, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because also he is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
these verses present quite a challenge for the expositor. All Old Testament scholars acknowledge the difficulty of properly interpreting these verses. And one wrote this. I love what he said. Unquestionably, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. And I certainly (coughs) agree with that. I bring this up primarily to give you a word of caution. So listen up carefully now. I want to caution you (coughs) against uh, an unreasonable dogmatism in the understanding of some of the certain details that we find in this passage. Because since this is a familiar story, and since most of us have been in church most of our lives, we have prior experience in this portion of Genesis, do we not? I would be really surprised if there's anybody here who's never heard of Noah and the flood. So since many of us have a prior understanding of this passage, and an equal number of us have entrenched ideas about certain aspects in this passage, for example, the, the identity of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. Who are the Nephilim? When, this, when the text says, my spirit will not strive, what does the spirit part mean? What does the word strive mean? We need to be very, very careful here when we come across these things, not to be, not to be unnecessarily dogmatic. Now, I'm about as dogmatic of a person you're ever going to meet when I'm certain that I'm correct. Sometimes that's lovely, (laughs) and sometimes that makes me hard to get along with. So I have nothing against dogmatism, but unnecessary dogmatism is where we want to be very careful. But on the other hand, we don't want to go to the other extreme and have an unhealthy doubt. So we don't want unnecessary dogmatism, but we don't want to go to the opposite extreme and just be a, a limp noodle halting between two opinions. You know what they say about people just hang out in the middle of the road, don't you? Get smashed by an 18-wheeler. We don't want that either. We don't want unhealthy doubt or unnecessary dogmatism. We need to have a balance. And we don't want to be a source of division over the non-essentials. When it comes to one of the essentials of the faith, let's stand and let's fight for it. When it comes to the deity of Christ, we will duke it out. With words. When it, comes to, when it comes to salvation by grace through faith, that's something to fight for. Now, we can do it nicely. Because if we fight in an ugly manner, it no longer is honoring to God. So even on the things that we are dogmatic about, we need to speak the truth in love and in kindness. Because nobody is really persuaded by someone else's fist, whether it's verbal or whether it's physical. So we don't want to be a cause of division or diversion within the congregation. And we don't want to let certain things that may not be essential to our spiritual lives become divisive activities. And that happens in so many churches. Churches have split over things like the music. Should we do contemporary music or should we do traditional music? Churches have split over interpretations of the sons of God in Genesis 6 too. And that is sinful. And I don't want to be that kind of church. In a minute, I'm going to give you various views. I won't tell you what my view is, too. But I'm going to tell you that there, there are some things that are not as clear in the, in the Scriptures as others. And when that's the case, 
we need to realize that it may not be germane to our understanding of the past, what God is really saying here. So what I want to present to you today in the fairly short time we have for this message today, I want to tell you what the message of this passage is. Yeah, we'll get to the sons of God. We're going to get to it. So we shouldn't be divisive in our views, but we also ought not to be indifferent. That's the opposite of that. We just well, I don't care. Well, yeah, you ought to care. It's in here. We ought to spend some time, at least make an effort to understand what's being said. So I just want to guard, have us to guard against these things today. And, and I thought it was a good opportunity to bring it up because we need to guard against those kind of things all the time. We are a, a church that stands firmly and strongly and without apology, uh, apology with regard to our doctrinal statement. It's been well thought out, and it's been challenged. Uh, the things that we have in there have been challenged over centuries. But there are certain things that are not doctrinal statement kind of issues. And when churches start getting split over non-doctrinal statement kind of issues, something's gone wrong. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not working in that church. So we need to be very, very careful. The important thing, so let me give it to you now, since you, if you're wondering. The important thing that we observe from this passage is the increasing wickedness. That wickedness is becoming more prevalent at this time. And we need to realize that human survival involves more than just procreation. Any knucklehead can procreate. But human survival depends upon our submission to the commands of God. He is not going to bless disobedience. And he's not going to bless a nation that consistently disobeys him either, as much as we call upon him to do that. We need to be careful. Well, with that introduction, read with me, please, again, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, so they're getting the procreation part right. you see that? Okay. In verse 2, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So we see in verse 1 that they got the concept of being fruitful and multiplying. So far, so good. But when we get to verse 2, there's an implication that the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men contributed in some way to the explosion of wickedness. There's an implication that somehow this union's not right. Between the sons of God and the daughters of men, something is not right with this union. The first, and perhaps the greatest interpretive problem in this passage, is the identity of the sons of God. And as most Old Testament scholars will tell you, that's probably the most interpretive that's the most difficult interpretive problem in all of the book of Genesis. So let's go ahead and tackle that now while we're still fresh. The subject has been debated from ancient times. This is not a new discussion. And I don't for one minute believe that I'm going to settle this argument in the few minutes that we have to devote to it this morning. But because there is so much disagreement about this, I'm going to break from a custom that I have this morning. And I'm going to give you the primary alternatives that have been discussed. Ordinarily, I don't do that. I don't really think that that's a smart thing to do pastorally. When I teach in an academic setting, I will give all these views. If you're in a Bible uh, college class or a seminary class, you learn not only the view that the, the school or the institution thinks is the correct view, but you'll learn quite a few other views as well so that you can interact with them. I don't usually do that, but I, I am going to do it today because the views that I give you are going to be representative of at least somebody in the room. 
Now, there may be hybrid views on some of these, but, but hopefully, uh, hopefully I will at least give you the impression that I understand all the views. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes sense? <laughs> all right. There are three primary views with regard to who the sons of God are and sons of God are, and one hybrid view. The the the, uh, the views are these. The first is the angelic view. This view takes the sons of God to be angelic beings, who left the God-given boundaries between mankind and angelic beings and procreated with women, producing a half man, half angelic being, called in verse five the Nephilim. This view is the oldest understanding of this passage by far, with Jewish attestation dating back 200 years before the birth of Christ. It also has the strength of understanding the Hebrew phrase, Beneha Elohim, which is translated the sons of God, consistently with the only other references, uh, this phrase in the Old Testament, the other three references, Job 1.6, Job 2.1 and Job 38.7, where in each of those references, it is undeniably angelic beings that are in view. So, so this view boasts, if I could use that word, of antiquity with regard to its attestation. It also has the benefit of interpreting the phrase Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, consistently with the other uses of that phrase in Scripture. It, there does appear, in verse 2, there does appear to be a distinction in some way between the sons of God and human beings. There does appear to be some distinction there. Some also see the New Testament references in 1 Peter chapter 3 and Jude 6 to angels now bound in darkness because of their disobedience in the days of Noah. Some also would see that as a validation point for these being angelic beings. It has been speculated that this was a part of an angelic or satanic strategy to pollute the line of humanity and thwart the promise of the seed of the woman that was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I know that this is the view that many of us grew up with and has a lot to recommend it. But to, but to be perfectly transparent, it does have a couple of problems. And we need to be honest about that. No matter what view we hold, we need to be honest about the problems that it has. The biggest of which is the concept of angels and humans procreating, producing offspring. Now, that's, it's a problem. No matter how strong you hold to that view, that is a difficulty. Because our Lord himself said that angels don't procreate in Matthew twenty-two thirty, And that there also would be this very thorny theological problem on what do we do with the offspring of a union like that. And then the offspring of the union that takes place in the future, and then the offspring that would take place in the future, of course, it's not going to be an issue for very long because God's going to wipe out that creation. But you see, the offspring would be partially human and partially angelic, and angelic, the angelic destiny has already been determined, has it not? And then the human destiny has not been, so presumably every human being would have the opportunity to trust Christ, trust Yahweh in the Old Testament sense, and, and come to salvation, but what do you do about this hybrid kind of creature? So these are thorny theological issues. Later on in Genesis, with regard to the idea of procreating, later on in Genesis we will see angels eating. 
Um, these are people who have the form of a human, but then they are eating. But eating is a far cry from procreation. Now, there's another view, the despotic king's view, or the despotic judge's view. Some early Jewish interpreters, not as many as it took the, the uh, angelic view, but some took the sons of God to be human judges or rulers who descended from the line of Cain. In other words, the evil line. Now, this view avoids the problem of procreation because it says that those, the sons of God, were representative of human beings. But has the problem that nowhere else in the Bible is the phrase B'nei Elohim used to refer to human beings. So that's a problem. Now, if your brain's starting to hurt right now, this is what theological students go through every day. So you get a little bit of a taste, just a tiny taste. I won't dwell here long. We're almost finished with these three views. The third view is the, that these, the sons of God are godly men from the set line of Seth, Augustine, Calvin, and Luther took these son, uh, sons of God to be from the line of Seth. They argued that this best fits the flow of the passage because we just finished covering in, verse, in chapter 5 the line of Seth. So they would see the discussion continuing on into the first four verses of chapter 6. But like the despotic king's view, while this view avoids the problem of procreation found in the, in the angelic view, it still has this nagging problem that we have no other referent in the scriptures that we can point to where the phrase B'nei Elohim refers to human beings. So you can see that, that the three major views, and I assume that most of you, please don't show hands, but most of you are going to hold to one of them or have been introduced to one of them by our earliest pastors, and our earliest pastors do influence us very greatly. And I'm not here to disrespect anybody's earliest pastor, believe me. But I want to tell you the truth, and I want to give you the alternatives here. There is a fourth alternative and I'm going to tell you, this is the one that I find most appealing, me personally. It's proposed by Alan Ross, the Hebrew scholar, and others, that the phrase, B'nei Elohim, the sons of God, does refer to angelic beings. But these fallen angels, they were fallen angels, left their habitation and indwelt human despots or warriors, evil men, in other words, thereby exacerbating and accelerating the spread of wickedness on the earth. It's a bit of a hybrid view. It does take the B'nei Elohim as angels. But it doesn't say that the angels themselves procreated with human beings, but the angels indwelt the evil human beings who then produced the offspring. I find this as the fewest problems. Personally, I'm not, not going to evangelize for this view today. I, I just, and, and you've probably, probably never heard me say that, but, but I want us to get to the point of the passage. So we need to get through this. I think that has the fewest problems, and it's most likely to be valid. It does handle the procreation problem, while still maintaining at least a link between the phrase B'nei Elohim and angelic beings. Verse 2, while not arguing explicitly that the sons of God took more than one wife for themselves, definitely leaves open the possibility. They saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took the wives for themselves, whomever they chose. It certainly leaves open the possibility that they've... they've fled the boundaries that God had made for marriage. It's interesting, too, that we see some similar terminology here that we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw it. She took it. She ate it. Here we have the sons of God saw it, and they took. So even the terminology that's going on in, in verse 2, even the phraseology gives us the idea that something's not right here. Righteousness is not exploding 
Wickedness is exploding. Something's not right. Something's bad in Denmark and in the ancient world as well. Something is rotten here. So it leaves open the possibility that they are taking for themselves more than one wife. The phrase, they took for themselves whomever they chose, implies that this is a negative. Now the word take, or they, they took a wife for themselves, that implies a little bit of a negative already. It almost implies that the woman had no voice in the decision at all, doesn't it? But there's even more than that that makes this a negative fact. They took whomever they chose, with no regard for God at all. So verse 2 is a negative. Verse 2 shows us that wickedness is increasing, that they're operating outside of God's boundaries for humanity. They're doing it their way. When the Frank Sinatra is going to do it his way, great song, but bad theology. It's going to get you in big trouble when you've got to have it your way. It's fine for Burger King. They don't do it so much. They don't make the flame broil burgers like they used to. It's all microwave. Complained about that one time. Didn't change a thing. But I can have it my way, but I just can't have it flame broiled anymore. You know, they do flame broil them, and then they put them in a pan, and then they microwave them after that. I don't understand it at all. But they were doing it their way. And let's look at verses 3 and 4 as we close down today. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. You see, that's another reason we know that this is negative in verse 2. Something's wrong in verse 2, because immediately in verse 3, there's a divine evaluation of what's taking place. And it's not good. Nothing about blessing in verses 3 and 4. Nothing. In fact, there's not going to be much about blessing in these next few chapters. At least not right away. The Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then in verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Here we have the second mention of the Holy Spirit in Genesis. The first one was all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit was involved in creation. But now you know what we're going to see? Now in the second mention of the Spirit, the Spirit is going to be involved in destruction. First mention, creation. Second mention, destruction. One of the key interpretive problems here is, is what the Hebrew word yadon means. Yadon is translated strive here. The problem with this is this is the only time this word's ever used in the Hebrew Bible. So when it's, they call that a hapax legomena. It means it's the only time it's ever used. And it makes it difficult to interpret. So that's why your Bible may say something different from strive, because translators have difficulty with this. Other possibilities other than strive could be contend, protect, shield, or remain. Maybe your Bible say one of those or, or something like that. It would be legitimate. In any case, here's the point. The point is that the Lord would not allow the human race to, con- to continue on in such a state of wickedness and debauchery for an unlimited period of time. He is gracious, but his grace, while being perfect, is not infinite with regard to its time period. Sometimes people count on it. Well, the Lord's merciful. He's gracious. He's going to look the other way. Yeah, he may for a while to give you time to repent, to give this civilization time to repent. But there's a limit on it. And he puts a limit here to 120 years. 
And believe it or not, this is another interpretive problem. Some people say, well, that means people are going to live 120 years from now on. Others say that it's 120 years before the flood's going to come. That's the way I understand it. Because people after this still lived over 120 years. So he puts a time limit on it. And that time limit is gracious. They know they better get their act together. Noah's going to preach about this for a long time. It's not going to work. Warning after warning came. And it's not going to work for Israel later. The prophets came and said, listen, you better straighten up. Because if you don't straighten up and turn to God, God's going to come down. He's going to wipe you out. But then there's going to be a blessing for you later. The Jewish people won't be wiped out, but this civilization will be. They didn't get it in Genesis 6. They didn't get it. The Jews didn't get it throughout their prophets either. And one more issue, the Nephilim. The Nephilim appear, appear to be the offspring of the union between the sons of God and the daughter of men. Although there is not enough grammatical evidence in this passage to make, for me to make that claim dogmatically. I think that's probably what it is. I certainly would lean that way, but I can't, I'm not going to stand on that. You come up here and put a bullet to my head, you can have that one if you want. You put a bullet to my head and say, is Jesus Christ my Lord? You can't have that one. I'll die for that. Someday may have to, but I'll do that. But if I'm in some foreign country and they say, I heard you believe to an interpreter. I heard you believe that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were angels who had dwelt human beings, evil human beings. Yeah, that's what I believe. Were you going to die for that? No, not hardly. <laughs> Pick another subject. We're not going to do that. Well, I believe the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, but there's nothing grammatically in this text that tells us that. In fact, it's very disjointed. It's almost like that wasn't the point. The, the, the point is these were mighty men. These were men of renown. The use of the definite article, the Nephilim, the Nephilim, indicates that even in Moses' day, these people were known as a group. Do you remember back to Moses' day? you remember what the spies, when they came back to give the report of what was going on in the land, how did the spies describe the giants in the land? Nephilim. They used the same term. So whatever this group of people were... They, they were large men, they were very powerful men, and apparently very violent men. Fertility is a manifestation of God's blessing, as we celebrated in chapter 5. We need to recognize that as we open up chapter 6. And I know it's a pastoral occupational hazard that the primary thing you're going to be thinking about on the way home, if you're thinking about it at all, is how do I come down personally with regard to the sons of God or God striving with us or who the Nephilim are? And you can do that, that's fine, but please don't forget this. I would have been a failure this morning if you forget this part. They got the fertility part right. Fertility is a manifestation of God's blessing. But human survival is not dependent upon procreation alone. It is not. There must be a corresponding obedience on the part of humanity, to God's moral order. We'll more on this as we pick up our study next week.